This week's episode is brought to you by Fairy Godmother Travel. If you have any interest in traveling to any Walt Disney World, Disneyland, Alani, or Adventures by Disney, or Disney Cruise Line, and that's quite a bit, contact Fairy Godmother Travel at Weekly at fairygodmothertravel.com. Hello, and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And guess what? This week, we were lazy, and we didn't write a history segment. You know what what happens when we don't write a history segment? We invite someone else on to do the history segment for us. I thought we brought Bob Gurr on. No, well, yeah, we do that too. But when Bob Gurr's busy, we get the fifth best thing, and that is none other than Keith Gluck. Keith, welcome back to the show. Fifth best how goes it, sir? You seem to be falling in the rankings. How are well, you, boys? Well, we're still waiting on that gigantic check. <laughs> I gave you the gigantic check. You just didn't say whether or not it had to be made out of rubber. You, you didn't specify. Oh. <laughs> Get it that way. So, <laughs> so yeah, not not that we're lazy, but we know we know Keith, who uh, operates the Disney Project. I always put the D in front of it. Yeah, it, there is, there is a D in front of it. That's why I, when I went yeah. to register, the name Disney Project was taken. So there's a the. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's just their Twitter is Disney Project. Correct, because that was too long for uh, Twitter. So. That's why I get it backwards. That's why uh, I get it backwards. Yeah. So <laughs> Social media talk. I love it. I know. <laughs> Social media talk. What can we say about it? So, But yeah, so we brought Keith on this week because he's an expert in quite a few things. True. I'm not going to say what. Quite a few things. None of them relating to Disney. But no, no. No. But let's learn what, what Keith has to tell us about some Disney history fun. Here we go. Life is like a hurricane here in Gluckburg, singing with the Sherman. Then he'll shoot Zerg. Might solve a mystery about Disney history. Gluck tales, woo. Tales of Disney, Epcot, and some Gluck tales, woo. Not ponytails or rodent tails, but black tails. Woo! Disney, he's an expert. Learn some history, then has dessert. What to do? Just grab onto some black tails. Woo! Not ponytails or rodent tails, but black tails. Woo! Tales of Disney and weightlifting black tails. Woo! Not ponytails or rodent tails, but black tails. Yeah. Yay. So, um, do you boys remember Cranium Command? I I remember Cranium Command. In fact, I remember it quite well. Yes, I remember seeing it a few times before it met its uh, demise. It's Yeah, it's unfortunate demise. Uh, Well, see, most people remember the clever casting, like Bobcat Goldthwait as the adrenal gland, or George Wett as the stomach. Charles Grodin as the left brain, and Kevin Nealon and Dana Carvey playing Hans and Franz, pumping blood as ventricles. Pump you up. I was going <laughs> to wonder who, who got to say that line, so I knew it was going to be one of us. 
So anyways, the charming and multifaceted attraction that demonstrated how the brain interacts with different parts of the human body debuted with and inside Epcot's Wonders of Life Pavilion in October of 1989. That's Inception, right? <laughs> Wrong. Wrong. The popular show was unique in the way it combined multiple mediums seemingly effortlessly. However, boys, the path of its creation was anything but effortless. Really? You yes. say effortless? Yeah. Um, okay. So the night of the Disney MGM Studios opening day festivities, the director Jerry Reese was uh, approached by Peter Schneider, uh, then president of uh, Walt Disney Feature Animation. He told Jerry that the team had decided to put him on a go-fix-it mission. Jerry had already been asked to fix the Indiana Jones stunt show earlier that day by Michael Eisner, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and George Lucas. The project Schneider needed help with was called Cranium Command, and it was already halfway through production at Colossal Pictures. According to Peter, everyone pretty much hated what had been done so far, so Jerry was tasked with reviewing the project, assessing his weaknesses, and fixing them. That's a, that's a lot of stuff he's got to do. I mean, yeah, it, it sounds Especially, like he kind of had his hands full. Yeah, so he, he had four different people approach him about fixing different projects. That was a busy day for Jerry. He had four uh, shows debuting that day at MGM, so now they're coming at him with all these ideas that they need help with. And, and the, the creating command was interesting because they literally went to him and told him that it sucked. Like, <laughs> fix it. <laughs> I wonder if they if they came to him together or like Michael Eisner came up to him and was like, "Listen, Jeffrey Katzenberg and George Lucas don't know what they're doing. You really need to fix this." And then like an hour later, Jeffrey Katzenberg was like, "Listen, Eisner and Lucas, they're hacks. They don't know what's up." I think they actually Luke, Lucas them. said it needs more um, Ewoks. <laughs> Listen, we're gonna make it now, but in twenty years, we're gonna replace the eleven-year-old boy with a different person with using CGI. <laughs> <laughs> I have no response to that. <laughs> so after, um, okay, so Jerry obviously uh, rose to the challenge, and he, he he looked over the project, and he compiled some notes and joined a conference call uh, consisting of such Disney brass as Michael Eisner, Jeffrey Katzenberg, Marty Sklar, Tom Fitzgerald, and a few others. No, did Marty call and want changes also, or <laughs> <laughs> Marty called and wanted drastic changes? <laughs> I so, thought you said Jurassic changes at first. I was like, was "What? Cranium <laughs> Command in in Jurassic Park? I would see that show a million times." Breaking dinosaurs. So Jerry wasted little time telling him that the show's uh, telling them the show's faults as he saw them, and he actually had a few suggestions on how to make the show viable. Let me let me tell you uh, a few things that Jerry didn't like about the show up to that point. Uh, the educational issues were so obvious and patronizing that a five-year-old would find it embarrassingly awful to sit through, which is Is that why good. Jeff watched it so many times? There was no sense of living inside a real person's mind, someone you cared about. Uh, this is a weird thing uh, that Jerry was totally right about. The eye screens were only used occasionally to teach you a lesson and then turned off, leaving an important feature of the theater blank. Yeah, that makes really no sense to me, because it would seem like, you know, being able to see the world through the eyes of someone else would be the main part of the show. Why they didn't do that before makes no sense. Yeah. Uh, also, they, they had animated body parts, and they were all really cliche. So, wow. um, Jer Jerry laid all those out for the folks listening, and he had some suggestions to fix it, including rewriting the show from the ground up to tell an evolving story and hide the teaching in the entertainment, which is always the best way to go. He decided he should uh, direct all performances, including Buzzy and the body parts, to be believable, warm, and relatable. 
Um, in regards to those eyes, he said you have to keep them open at all times. Uh, after all, that's how we live life. If we get in trouble, we can't just turn our eyes off until we figure things out. I mean, we're not all Jeff Heimbuck. That's true. That's that, true. that is how, for the record, Keith has been staying with us for the weekend, and that's pretty much how I live my day, just with my eyes closed <laughs> all the way. That's how we. That, that's how we uh, got out of trouble at Pirates today. You know, he's he's not lying. I did go through Pirates with my eyes closed, and that will be an interesting conversation that we should have some other time in a future wow. episode. Yeah, anyway, actually, it was pretty in, interesting. Yeah, in, in the dark trip report. Yes, and in the dark trip report. Anyway, okay. back to Kratom Command. That's more important right now. <laughs> and you, he wanted to turn people's ex- expectations on their heads and make the body parts like right brain, adrenal, etc., live action actors in crazy sets. So, as you can tell, boys, pretty much every idea he had was right on the money, and everybody else felt the same way. Uh, so, pretty much the previous production company uh, was immediately relieved of its duties, and Jerry's, Jerry and his team were assigned to the project. Uh, the good thing about it was he was granted tons of creative freedom. The bad thing was half the schedule was already gone, and shifting the attraction's opening date was not an option. Wow. Jerry and his team worked around the clock on both Cranium Command and the Indiana Jones stunt show. Their workspace for storyboarding Cranium Command was actually the little fishbowl in the animation tour. Their just completed Back to Neverland film starring Robin Williams and Walter Cronkite was playing in the theater, and as guests exited the show, the first thing they saw when they looked through the glass was Jerry's team actually storyboarding Cranium Command. The guests had no idea that they were looking at the birth of an Epcot attraction. Wow, talk about spoilers. Yeah, really. <laughs> but spoilers without even knowing that they are actual spoilers. Ex- yeah. They probably thought they were just animatronic robots sitting there. Well, some of them were. <laughs> the, the plan for Creative Command was to utilize several different elements to tell the story. Jerry directed the entire main show and everything that you saw and heard from the eight screens, two audio animatronic figures, and the ten discrete channels of sound. The pre-show, a five-minute animated short, was directed by Gary Truesdale and Kirk Wise. That's the same duo who would go on to co-direct Beauty and the Beast together. Mm. And animator Steve Moore worked on the animation in the Crane and Command pre-show, and he also worked with Jerry on a few other projects that they, they did together, such as Michael and Mickey, Back to Neverland. And they also worked on Alien Encounter together. I loved it, by the way. Just throwing that out there. Loved the Alien Encounter. All right, go on. I never got to see that one, unfortunately. <gasps> it was awesome. awesome. Yeah, I saw Stitch and I saw Stitch on my first visit, and I haven't seen it since. You know, if you were staying wow. another night, I would reenact it for you this evening. However, unfortunately, you have to get on an airplane. So, would you drive me to the airport? Can you have Martina drive, and you can do like an interpretive dance at the front seat. Okay, we can do that. Perfect. The pre-show featured young Captain Buzzy receiving his first assignment, piloting the brain of a twelve-year-old boy. The officer in charge, General Knowledge, referred to the boy's brain as the most unstable craft in the fleet. I'm guessing uh, Taylor's brain was a part of that fleet. <laughs> <laughs> Taylor, Taylor Swift? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll go with Taylor Swift, George. Same difference, okay. actually. That's funny. <laughs> George does love, write a lot of love songs about boys. That is that is true. George, yeah, he does text me all the time saying he's feeling 22. So. By the way, he, he's going to tell me that you're never, ever, ever going to be back on the show ever again. <laughs> ever, ever. Like ever. Well, it depends on how he does on the book, the book segment. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna finish strong with that one. Okay, good, good, good. Being inside of the mind of a boy uh, meant lot, lots of point of view or POV uh, shots, as the audience was seeing what he was seeing. Jerry had this to say about the process: the complexity of directing continuous POV footage with no apparent cuts, plus the adjoining screens and figures who had to interact with the ongoing POV, was wild. Mm-hmm. A stickler for detail, Jerry took the director of photography and camera operator to each location prior to shooting and filmed tests using his personal video camera. 
he wanted to figure out to actually how to make the cameras express behavior so that the audience would feel like they were inside the mind of a person with emotions. Once all of the POV shots were complete, Jerry then had to begin filming the body part sequences. In order for it all to match up, he had the POV footage playing it back at the same time. It was actually quite the tightrope for Jerry because he had to uh, direct each body part with one eye on the POV footage so he could make sure that all the uh, actors were provided with their cues. After the complicating filming had wrapped, Jerry then began the complicated post-production process. Even though he mocked up as much of the Crane and Command Theater as he could in Los Angeles, it was still hard for people to understand how the final theater was going to work. While reviewing the footage, Katzenberg would lean over to him and ask, Who's talking? And Jerry would explain that it was Buzzy, an audio-animatronic figure that would be in the theater with guests. Several folks just went up to Jerry and shook their heads, saying, Well, I'm glad you know how it all comes together. The idea for the other audio-animatronic character featured in the show, the hypothalamus, was actually suggested by Jerry's wife, Rebecca. She came up with the whole droning character that is taken for granted because all he does is automatic functions. Everyone loved the idea, and pre-show co-director Kirk Wise came up with the perfect voice. You guys ah, so remember it was, his it voice? Was, it was his voice, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was very, Kirk Wise's voice. It was very Ben Steinish. Yeah, precisely. Just that you know, droning, so... Buzzy. <laughs> Buzzy. <laughs> It was it's like buzzy. listening to some other Disney podcast. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you very much. Know. But not the Disney project. No, no, not that one. No, not that one. No, not, not the one. second greatest online show. Or, or or coffee with Curdy. Oh, that's a pretty good one too. That's a good. Stop one Stop advertising his stuff. He hasn't paid us yet. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. I pay you with friendship. <laughs> during my interview with Jerry, I actually asked him what the most challenging aspect was during the process of creating Caribbean Command. He said it was keeping all of the various participants on track when none of them understood exactly how they fit into the wild tapestry of the show. One time he was called away from the set and was told by some executives who oversaw budget that the project was way too ambitious and there was no way that he could stage an entire POV food fight. Jerry just shrugged them off, shot the scene as he planned, and it turned out just fine. Mm. So the whole thing was really like an uphill battle for Jerry, but he actually, you know, he did a really good job. Crane and Command quickly became a guest favorite thanks to its charm, ingenuity, and educational aspects. Astrophysicist slash astronomer slash Arthur Carl Sagan actually had this to say about the show. Seated in theater, you find yourself inside the head of an 11-year-old boy. You look, through, you look out through his eyes. You encounter his typical daily crises. Bullies, authoritarian adults, crushes on girls. You hear the voice inside his head. You witness his neurological and hormonal responses to his social environment. And you get to wonder how you work on the inside. Wow. Um, to me, that aspect is really indicative of early Epcot. The Wonders of Life Pavilion began operating seasonally in 2004 and closed for good on New Year's Day 2007. There hasn't been a show quite like Cranian Command since then, but luckily for us guys, Disney still continues to utilize Jerry's talents to this day. So, Where else can we find Jerry's work? You can find Jerry's work on the DisneyProject.com because June, <laughs> June was devoted to Jerry's. <laughs> I was about to jump in and say, no, 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 we want something that's worth something, um, something with merit. That was a um, very, very subtle, not subtle uh, advertisement for the Disney project. However, he it, it has been Jerry Reese month over there, and that's why we had Keith on the show, not just because he's in my house for the week, um, but because if you haven't heard the, the podcast that he's done with Jerry, they are incredibly informative, they are yes. wonderful, and I really suggest that you guys check him out after you listen to us, of course. But then go listen to well, the Disney Project podcast. You have to listen to this one twice, then go listen to the Disney Project. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Just so we know where your allegiance lies. Yeah, of course, of course. 
thank you, thank you. Thanks, thanks a lot for telling us about Kratom and uh, Keith. Well, my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed it. He's a nerd. He's a geek. Because we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's book of the week. So this week's book is The Art of Disneyland. And, and I know, guys, before you start yelling and screaming at us through your MP3 players, this is one we covered already. But we have Keith Gluck on this show who happened to interview one of the authors, Jeff Curdy. And I thought it'd be great to bring him back up and say, you know, tell us a little about, about the experience of talking to Jeff Curdy about the book The Art of Disneyland, which Jeff Curdy wrote with Bruce Gordon back in 2006. So, Keith, tell us a little bit Tell us a little secret or something. Well, okay. Um, I did uh, do I do a podcast with Jeff Curry. It's called Coffee with Curdy. Oh, with the advertisements for yourself already. <laughs> Jeez. I'm just kidding. That one's really good, let's, too. Let, let's give it because it's got Curdy in it. You know? Okay, okay. Fair enough. And on, on episode five, we actually did talk about uh, the art of Disneyland. And he, he gave me – it was a really long, actually, episode. It was like 45 minutes. And he gave me a lot of good uh, insight into the making of the book. Uh, one of the first things he told me was a lot of people were curious as to why the book is laid out the way it is. Um, a lot of the art that they found was rectangular to show scope, um, and Jeff didn't want the art to fall into the gutter of the spine, so they actually decided to make the art, uh, the, the pages go sideways. The, the whole book, you had to turn on the side, and when they made that decision, Jeff said that everybody freaked out um, to the point where they thought, both him and Bruce thought people were joking uh, because it wasn't that big of a deal, but people really freaked out for some reason. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that, that's a huge difference. And I, even the, the only two books that I know of are The Art of Disneyland and The Art of Walt Disney World. Yeah. That are shaped that, or I mean, that, that present the photos and the artwork sideways, basically. Right. And um, it works. It works really well. Yeah, no, it, it, it was a really good call. Um, but still, so the people were figured out to the point where Jeff actually had to write a two-page spread telling the reader, okay, <laughs> this is why the book is going to have to turn sideways now. <laughs> so... Oh, that's fantastic. Um, of course, it never had to be used, but um, he did tell me when he was uh, structuring the book, he had two specific things in mind. Um, first, he went land by land and wanted to tell a story about visual development in terms of how creatively Disneyland was put together uh, thematically and also how the various artists used their skill to execute the designs that led to the visualization of Disneyland as we know it. Okay. The second thing was he wanted to present a certain number of what he considered the expectation images or the reasonably iconic artworks that people have seen before, but maybe present them in a way that they may not have seen before. Okay. Uh, most of the art had never been published on any type of broad level, so uh, they had the advantage of revealing a lot of new artwork to uh, these people out there. Yeah, I know from episode five of Coffee with Curdy, which was a phenomenal episode, they're all fantastic. And he talked about how much artwork they had to go through and, and yeah. how much of it was iconic. And now seeing it, the book seems so commonplace, but at the time it was really revolutionary to see this concept artwork from all over the place. Yeah, there. I, I think it speaks to the fact that these books are so sought after and at mm -hmm. several hundred dollars if you try to find them online that they just did an amazing job putting together all this uh, never before seen artwork. And the book is gorgeous. And um, I'm actually looking at it right now. and. I'm particularly fond of pages 27 and 28 because it highlights the two Gotcha. I love the two <laughs> well, well uh, before we end the segment, Keith, where can people find Coffee with Curdy episode number five as well as the rest of them? Well, people can go to uh, iTunes and just type in Coffee with Curdy. Uh, the podcast premiere uh, monthly on mychat.com. And or if you just Google Coffee with Curdy, it'll come up. 
and they can enjoy, I believe we're up to eight now. So um, yeah, we do them every month and they should be premiering in the middle of each month. All right, thanks a lot, Keith. Thanks guys. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. So this week's goat we actually got from Keith himself. You know, in Cranium Command, there are several sets that were actually in different locations, much like, you know, regular movie sets. So, director Jerry Reese had to think of clever ways to use cuts to go back and forth between these different locations. In one scene, where the boy leaves the principal's office, he turns to the right, and the audience sees his school hallway complete with lockers and everything. The problem was, there actually was no hallway outside the principal's office, instead it was just the wall. So, they set up items like a chair and a plant and a picture just outside the office, and they filmed the scene, and they turned the camera right, and they cut. Then they packed all that stuff up, they moved all the way across town to the school with that hallway, and they reset up the same chair and the plant and the picture exactly the same way, and they filmed the rest of the scene. And in the editing room, they picked a matching flame, uh, frame blur to cut it in on it on so it looked like it's seamless, and it ended up working really well. Yeah, it did. Um, Jerry actually told me that, you know, they had to do it that way because back then there was no, you know, digital help, so they had to do it all old school, and I think they did a good job. I think they did a very good job as well. Wow, this is sort of like how it was to record Communicore Weekly five years ago. Exactly. We, we were doing wow. it five years ago? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, once we released the archives, I mean, oh, people okay. know about it. You know, yeah, with I'm, tin cans. Yeah, and I used to rent about Betamax, so I'm glad you guys are digital now. <laughs> <laughs> Betamax Communicore Weekly. The only way to listen to the greatest <laughs> online show. If that works, that works. Okay. Well, Thanks so much for watching, listening, and absorbing. And of course, a big thank you to Keith for coming on this week and doing a little history for us and contributing to the book of the week as well and giving basically writing this week's show. Let's Yay. let's give it up for Keith for that one, guys. <laughs> Round of applause. Yay! Thanks, guys. But be sure to leave us a comment and rate us on iTunes. Yep, and you can always email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicorweekly. And don't forget how important it is to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Imagineerding, and he's at Jeff Heimbuck. And Keith, and where can forget, we find you? Yeah, I was going to say, and, and Keith is at, at Disney Project. Yes. I always get it confused. I try to put the the in there, and there's no the. No the. No the. Just at Disney Project. Yes. So... For Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. And for Keith Gluck, I'm Keith Gluck. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening, guys. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. Super awesome wagon.